This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome to Money and Markets, the podcast from AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Hello, I'm Dan Coatesworth and joining me is Danny Hewson. As the G7 meets, we'll be assessing what kind of a splash those global tax plans have really made on markets. Hello, more hot air from the housing market as prices hit a record high. The Bank of England's outgoing chief economist Andy Haldane has warned it's firing up inequality and says more needs to be done to boost building. I've been chatting to George Barrow, the co-manager of the Polar Capital Global Financial Trust. Now, he's been telling me why financial stocks be making a bit of a comeback and what investors need to look out for. Plus, with attention for many turning to summer holidays, how are airlines coping after another blow to their plans? And what does it mean for the UK leisure industry? And Jen's back with another quirky money story. Hi there. I'm rather taken with an artistic tale. Now, usually you'd go out of your way to avoid fake products. But in this case, one copy has got buyers falling over themselves to snap it up. Thanks, Jen. We are back after picking a cracking week off, Dan. It's not often, is it, that half term delivers the sun? Yeah, it was good. I had two days of rain as I managed to uh, enjoy it on one side of the country and follow it. Uh, take it back with me home the next day but yeah no it's it's good how about you Danny what did you get up to I did all the things that you would normally do at half term but really haven't been able to do so I went to the pub I went out for lunch with the kids Uh, it it was just lovely saw friends so yeah it was ever so nice very good well so before we crack on with these G7 tax plans let's start with a bit of news that broke just before we recorded this podcast and El Salvador has become the first country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. So the government has said it's made history that the move will make it easier for Salvadorans living abroad to send money home. So Bitcoin is going to become legal tender alongside the US dollar. And really, this new law means every business must accept Bitcoin as legal tender for goods or services unless it's unable to provide the technology needed to do the transaction. So, Danny, did this have any impact on the Bitcoin price? Yeah, I'm just having a look at uh, the prices and they're fluctuating quite a bit. Uh, Bitcoin itself is up almost 7% um, since the news broke, um, over $35,000 now. Um, Also seeing all of the other cryptos that I can see on my list from CoinMarketCap all up as well. Uh, Ethereum's up 2%, Binance Coin up 3%. I mean, this is one of those things where you know, a a turn of the page and you see some big gains for Bitcoin. But then, you know, tomorrow we could see Elon Musk tweeting something or somebody (laughs) deciding that they're not going to take Bitcoin or or one of the other cryptocurrencies and the price can go in the other direction. And, And I know that we always say this, but if you are thinking of investing in cryptocurrency, do make sure that you understand the risks and that you can afford to lose your money as well as, of course, make gains. Very wise words. So that's one story expected to have huge ramifications worldwide. Another has to be those G7 tax plans. Yeah, this is a really historic deal in the making. Um, Decades 
this has been talked about. I remember um, seeing George Osborne uh, coming out of a G20 tax meeting in Russia when he was chancellor back in 2013, I think it was. And, and he was saying then that they were close to some kind of global tax system because, of course, the world has changed. We've got these huge multinational companies, particularly when you think about the tech companies that are based in places like the United States, and yet they make an awful lot of money right across the world. So these changes, in a nutshell, are twofold, the ones that have been agreed so far by the G7. Now, one of these changes enables countries to tax large company profits based on their sales in that market. And the second sets a minimum global corporation tax rate. Now that would be at least 15% and it would capture thousands of firms to be paid in their home countries. Now, at the moment, it's thought that about 100 of the world's biggest companies would be impacted. That's where they're starting with, because, of course, it's incredibly complicated. So they're starting with those big names like your Google, Apple. So far, so good. But there's a load more to be hammered out. In fact, something that I've spotted today is uh, Rishi Sunak uh, apparently pushing for financial services to be excluded. We've also got the Financial Times reporting that Poland and Hungary's finance ministers are saying that their countries won't sign up to this deal unless there is a way to carve out and protect substantive business activities in their country. Now, from the G7, it's then got to go before the G20 next month, changes negotiated, and then 139 countries overseen by the OECD will aim to get an agreement by October. But, you know, there are a huge number of moving parts here, aren't there? And there's an awful lot of national interest that countries like to set their own tax rates, particularly when you think about Ireland. That's why they've been able to attract so many big names because their corporation tax is so low. And there is concern in some countries that this will see them missing out. But, you know, we've got to this point. It was a huge step. I think everyone sort of was quite surprised when it actually got over the line. But, you know, things could still collapse before the deal is actually done. Now, one concern that Amazon might escape paying more tax does seem to have been dealt with reports today that it will target the business of its cloud computing unit, which does make profits over the 10% margin that has been set. And Tax at the moment, hugely contentious. I mean, it always is anyway. But at a time when governments are having to spend so much money fighting their way out of the pandemic, then making sure people pay their fair share is something which gets an awful lot of people riled up. And it's been further fueled today by revelations from the news website ProPublic, which claims that it's seen the tax returns of some of the world's richest people. And let's just say they're all paying very little in the way of income tax. And in fact, in some cases, in some years, none at all. Now, at the moment, the plan changes being discussed have been pretty much brushed off by markets. And in fact, the Nasdaq has had a really good week. Yeah, I mean, we've had um, some, some interesting US jobs numbers come out. They've disappointed again. Investors gave the thumbs up to it because it suggests the economy isn't overheating that the Federal Reserve won't be in a rush to change monetary policy. 
Yeah, as we've said before, you know, at the moment for markets, bad news is good news. And growth stocks like those big fang boys, they've made some pretty decent gains because the outlook for keeping interest rates lower makes their long term earnings more valuable. Now, there were a couple of things that did give markets pause yesterday and inflation. Again, we're going to be talking a lot more about it because we get the latest figures later this week. Um, But Concern about rising prices was one thing that came out of a small business confidence survey. And also we had jolts numbers, the number of job openings, and that hit a record high in the US. But of course, if the labor isn't there to do the jobs, to take advantage of the reopening boost, that momentum really could quickly fade. One thing, as we've always said, that could really shake things up, that inflation data, if it's higher than the previous month, then there's going to be some nervous investors. But as we've said before, the Fed kept saying that they are prepared to let things run hot whilst those jobs numbers are low. And that brings us full circle. Yes, there's a couple of stories in the UK making a splash. The first of which is the housing market, which Andy Haldane has referred to as being on fire. Yeah, we're really going to miss him, aren't we, when he leaves later this (laughs) month? He's really making the most of his last few days. First, speaking about the housing market, because we had some figures earlier in the week which showed the prices are up again and really show no signs in letting up, at least for now, because, of course, all this talk of restrictions because of COVID and potential that there might be prolonged for complete reopening, that's only adding to people's desires to invest in their own four walls and make what's inside them as roomy as possible. Now, If you're a homeowner, you're probably thinking, this is great. But of course, there's a bigger issue here, which Andy Haldane pointed out, because as prices keep going up, it widens the gap between those on the ladder and those not. Now, unsurprisingly, we saw house builders making some pretty decent gains on both the news of upward price pressure and Mr Haldane's comments that more homes need to be built in order to deal with this issue of demand way outstripping supply. He said there need to be a huge intervention if this 30-year trend that we've seen is to finally be addressed in some way. And he's also waded into the inflation pond today, saying that if the economy keeps on booming in the UK, then the tap of monetary support will need to be turned off, saying that it was hard at the moment to find anything where the price wasn't going up. So we've also got a new company that spun out of a FTSE 100 mining business. And that's certainly got some people talking. Yeah, Anglo-American, as you say, the big mining company, it's been under pressure to do something about its ESG credentials. The big thorn in its side was its thermal coal mining operation. So it decided to spin it off to demerge it from the hole. Now, this was really an interesting exercise because as rather expected, its share price tanked on day one because those not wanting to be associated with the operation ditched their shares straight away. But then yesterday, whoa, huge increases up 29% back to just six pence below where it started. And while we are talking ESG, worth a mention of Royal Dutch Shell because its CEO has said that it will accelerate its energy transition strategy following that landmark court ruling last month. 
it's likely to see a dramatic shrinking of its oil and gas business. Now, the company does plan to appeal the ruling to dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 45 percent by 2030. But the ruling applies immediately, so it can't be suspended before appeal. And Ben Van Buren says it doesn't mean a change, but an acceleration. And whilst we're talking about activism, there's been a lot of agitating going on. Yeah, so we've got some traction with activist investors this year. So Aviva is the latest target. But I thought before I sort of explain what's going on with the insurer, it's probably worth just getting giving a, um, a quick explanation about what activists do. I mean, it's something that you hear it talked about quite a bit, but, um, you know, essentially they're trying to challenge long-held views in a business and just bring a new perspective to companies that might have lost their way. They certainly like to shake up boards of directors who might often just be a rubber stamp rather than um, a, a collective group of um, senior individuals trying to challenge management and they also they target underperforming companies and try and unlock value for themselves and for other shareholders. Now, it must be said that these campaigns aren't always successful, um, but when they do happen and they go off successfully, you know, there are some smiles all around. Um, to give you an example, Elliot is one of the um, sort of the better known activist investors in the market. They were successful in pushing Whitbread to sell its Costa coffee business to Coca-Cola for £3.9 billion. Now, that uh, gave Whitbread a much tighter focus on its hotel business. It'd been asked for years when you're going to spin off Costa and um, you know, it's got a bit more clarity to it. Now, Elliot's got sites uh, hooked on GlaxoSmithKline now. And so if reports suggest it's queried whether Chief Executive Emma Walmsley is the best person for the job now she's previously said i'm not a scientist i'm a business leader now one has to think has that led elliot or others to think that a company like GlaxoSmithKline would actually be better run by a scientist now we've seen another bust up recently between u.s activist coast capital and the transport group First Group. So Coast is the biggest shareholder here. It's been calling for First Group to sell its US operations. So when First Group actually went and did this and struck a deal, now Coast Capital is grumbling about the price that was struck. Um, but, you know, there's been enough shareholders to vote that one through. Wasn't there some talk of activists in the tobacco sector? Yeah, so there's, there's an interesting development here. So where Spring Mountain Investments has built up a, a, a sort of a near 7% stake in British American tobacco. Now that makes it the largest individual shareholder. And Spring has also taken a near 3% stake in Imperial Brands. So what, what remains to be seen here is what its intentions are. Um, we don't actually know if it's going to be an activist, but if you have a stake of that size, it does give you some power to sort of go to the boards and sort of make proposals if that's what it's going to be doing. But it's not just, you know, it's not just tobacco that's going on. I mean, and, and in, you know, I'll come to Aviva in a second, but earlier this week, we saw an activist investor in a gaming company called CD Project. Now, you might be familiar with this business. It's Poland's largest gaming studio. And it was all over the news last December when one of the, the most highly anticipated game released last year was Cyberpunk 277. 
it was released and it was full of glitches and it actually caused such an uproar that more than half of the company's market value was wiped off. Now we've got UK-based Abri advisors written to the studio's board expressing utter dismay and disbelief with what's been going on with the company. You know, and that brings us full circle. So we're, we're, we're here to talk about Aviva and you've got Sevian Capital has taken a near 5% stake. Now, one might think this is a bit of an odd move because activists often push for asset disposals and Aviva's just actually finished selling lots of its international operations. So, you know, has Sevian just come too late to the party? What it spotted is the fact that Aviva's sitting on loads of cash from these sales and Sevian wants the insurer to be really generous with how much of that cash it hands back to investors and it wants it to make deeper cost cuts. Now, that is a classic activist move. Lots of activity for people to keep an eye on at the moment, both in and out of the boardroom. And I spotted an ONS report that showed merger and acquisition activity, which was curtailed by the pandemic, has shot back up. And the latest figures for March showed activity was almost back to pre-pandemic levels. Confidence is growing. Investor appetite is changing. And I know that you've been taking a hard look at one specific sector that seems to be back in vogue. Financial stocks have been making a bit of a comeback, which is good news for George Barrow, who co-manages the Polar Capital Global Financials Trust. So I'm pleased to welcome George onto the podcast to talk about this sector. So, George, thanks ever so much for joining us. Morning, Dan. Uh, thank you for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Our pleasure. So I thought I'd start off by um, just taking a sort of a, getting an understanding of what where and you look at this sector and, and what you're looking for. So, so I certainly know that a lot of investors don't like banks and insurance companies because they are arguably complicated businesses and they're certainly under regulatory pressure. So what's your argument for investing in them? Is it simply down to collecting this stream of potentially generous dividends? Right. Oh. I think first off, uh, it's important to recognise you know, how much the sector has evolved since the global financial crisis and important to emphasise how, how broad the sector is. Uh, and so the trusts invest globally across both developed uh, and emerging markets, but also across segments. So, you know, banks and insurance are an important part, but we also invest across fintech, you know, asset managers, exchanges, etc. So it, it is a pretty broad universe. Um, and you know, the last 10 years, we have seen a prolonged period of regulatory tightening. You know, we've had conduct fines, increases in terms of capital requirements. But you know, we now have a sector, we think, that is much more resilient in terms of both capital and funding. And I think this downturn has demonstrated this. It's now in a position to return significant amounts of capital to shareholders. And, and we expect the remaining restrictions on dividends and buybacks to be lifted later this year for European banks which offer a high single digit yields, uh, while US banks offer yields in excess of 5% uh, if you include buybacks and dividends. So you know, the capital return element is certainly important, but you know, the sector's earnings are also geared to economic reopening uh, and reflation, and it's the most sensitive sector to high yields. Uh, we think it's also cheap uh, despite the recent recovery. So US and European banks trade below the lows of their historic uh, relative PE ranges. Um, and as noted, it's also very diverse. So, you know, aside from value and yield plays, there are also many structural growth opportunities, you know, both within developed 
and emerging markets. Um, and given the company specific risk uh, from issues such as regulation, uh, as you mentioned, you know, we think it's very important to take a diversified approach. And, and that's what the, the trust aims to provide for shareholders. So theoretically, banks have a greater chance of growing earnings when interest rates go up. So when do you think that we'll see some big rate changes in the UK and US? Yeah, so the banking sector would be a key beneficiary of, of rising rates. And, and just to give some sensitivity, you know, for, for US banks, 100 basis points increase in, in rates would lead to, on average, around a 13% increase in earnings in year one. And that rises to around 20% in year two uh, as more of the loan book gets repriced. Um, and given the level of fiscal and monetary support, you know, we are seeing a strengthening in the labour market. Uh, there's an expectation for a sharp recovery in consumer spending as those economies reopen. We do expect the Fed to outline a path for, for tapering of the asset purchases later this year, which we expect to lead to, to a rise in bond yields. So the market is pricing in a first increase in US rates late next year, um, which is ahead of the Fed's guidance. And I, and I think that seems reasonable given what we're seeing from, from macro trends. And I think what's important to bear in mind is currently there's no benefit in consensus earnings for higher rates. So with rates at such depressed levels, they don't need to rise much for the sector to see a significant support to earnings. So any upward shift is, is positive. And I think, you know, given what we've seen in terms of attitude to fiscal policy, you know, Biden's looking to push through his, his large uh, infrastructure bill later this summer. And I think that's in part a consequence of, of the sort of unintended consequences of QE with things like widening income inequality. So, you know, I'd argue that the last 10 years is maybe not a good guide as to what kind of inflation and rate environment we'll see in, in the next 10 years. So your trust invests in various parts of the world. So where are you seeing the best opportunities at the moment? So we have shifted our, our geographic exposure quite materially in, in the last few months. And I think last year, when it was clear that we were seeing a more resilient macro trends in Asia, um, which was benefiting from, from sort of tech-related exports, better containment of the pandemic, you know, we took advantage of the sell-off in EM to then raise our exposure, particularly in emerging Asia. Um, so we raised our EM component from around 13% to 28% of the trust. Now, we've subsequently taken that down to around 17%, and we've recycled that into developed markets that we felt were well-placed for the next phase of the recovery from the health crisis. And, and more recently, you know, a good example would be that we've been adding to our European exposure, you know, a region that was materially affected by economic lockdowns, you know, relatively slow to scale up its vaccination efforts, but now we think looks well-placed for reopening and, and valuations we think are, are very attractive. Um, we expect the ECB and Bank of England to lift the remaining buyback and dividend restrictions in September. And, and that should also provide support for the region's banks. So within Europe, we've added across banks to those that offer strong capital return potential, but also those sort of specialists and challenger banks that have attractive growth prospects. And we've added to certain non-life names in the UK that, that have lagged the recovery, um, but also areas of structural growth within both areas like fund platforms, but also exchanges. Yeah, I mean, you, you make a reference to challenger banks, but, you know, we've seen um, companies like Monzo certainly attract big customer numbers, but you know, they are struggling to make a profit. So do you think that traditional banks actually fighting back in terms of having modern technology and better service standards 
And so these challenges might not actually be the threat that we once thought they were. Yeah, I think it's a really sort of interesting question that we're seeing at the moment. And, and as we're seeing in other sectors, the you know, financials are seeing an acceleration in that pace of change as technology is deployed. And, and consequently, the incumbents are seeing threats from digital challenges, fintech, but also from large tech encroaching in the sector. Um, but the incumbents aren't, aren't standing still and, and they are investing significantly in their own digital capabilities. So, you know, large cap US banks have an annual uh, IT budget of $10 billion. We are seeing changes in terms of distribution. So the Nordic banks are a good example. You know, they've improved their efficiency by reducing their branch networks by up to 80%. And we're also seeing the incumbents um, make acquisitions to, to enhance their, their technology. So you know, we're focused on investing in, in both the incumbents we feel are well-placed to transition to the next generation of, of financial services, as well as those fintechs and challenges that are looking to, to disrupt. And specifically regarding Monslow, um, I, I guess we've always struggled a bit with, with the business model. I mean, they've scaled successfully in terms of customer numbers, um, but they've struggled to monetize it. And ultimately, you know, I think they'll need to start to ramp up their, their lending, although that's easier said than done. And their initial lending efforts have been accompanied by pretty high default levels. But I think overall, even though we are seeing a bit of a mixed track record in terms of digital challenges. It's clear you know, the sector is evolving rapidly. And so the future winners we think from the existing players are either gonna be those small sort of niche players that focus on specific areas or large enough to have the IT budgets to compete effectively in terms of digital distribution. They could act as aggregators for financial services and they could leverage a, a very efficient cost base. Yeah. So are you surprised that banks and other financial companies weren't badly affected by the pandemic? Because one might have predicted a wave of business failures and certainly customers not being able to repay their debts. But I know obviously governments have been quick to provide support. I was just wondering whether there is still a risk that we could see some COVID related shocks in the financial sector. I think a stat that was, was very telling was in April last year in the, in the U.S., uh, 20 million people in the U.S. lost their lost their jobs in the month, and yet personal incomes rose 11% month on month. And you know this was due to the the government measures that came in. So we had things like stimulus checks, increased unemployment benefits, and and the public health crisis has really prompted a a big shift in terms of government attitudes towards fiscal support, and we've seen that across regions. Um, in terms of the impact on asset quality. You know, there was a lot of uncertainty last year as to the, the scale of deterioration and the extent to which things like loan deferrals or, or loan payment holidays would then turn into non-performing loans. And what we've now seen is that most of that regulatory forbearance has matured and the vast majority of borrowers who took a payment holiday, so sort of over 95%, have subsequently migrated back to becoming performing loans. So we're not out of the crisis yet. Now, clearly there are still risks you know, particularly in relation to sectors such as you know, leisure, hospitality, tourism, you know, those sectors most sort of affected by COVID. But these are relatively small parts of loan portfolios, sort of typically one to two percent. Um, and, and we think the visibility on the asset quality outlook has improved materially. Uh, one important point is you know, a key difference to last cycle is that due to accounting changes, banks now make provisions on an expected basis. So they book the provisions up front and they've taken the hit to the PL last year. So the last few quarters, we've actually started to see those provisions now being released, and that's supported earnings. 
and JP Morgan have guided that it's over-reserved by around $7 billion should its base case economic scenario play out. And, and that should provide a tailwind to earnings in future quarters as, the, as that's released. So I think we've, we've seen a much more resilient sector during this downturn, um, and that's been highlighted by the levels of surplus capital in the system and their ability to quickly restart paying a high yield uh, back to shareholders. And, and that is a real contrast to what we saw last cycle during the GFC. Well, brilliant. George, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thanks very much, Dan. So that's financial stocks, but what about the travel and leisure sector? What have you been seeing, Dan? Well, I've been reading about two-hour waits for drinks in the pub, two-hour waits to get into a theme park, four-hour waits at the airport. I mean, it doesn't really sound like fun, does it? I mean, so Danny, you say you went to the pub, but did you, in your holiday, did you have to wait a long time to be served? No, but I'm up north, so, uh, you know, <laughs> and everywhere had these apps. It was quite incredible. Um, you sat down at your table. You had a choice of whether or not the waitress was going to serve you or whether or not you were going to use the app. And the app was so easy and things were so quick um, that, that no, no two hour waits. I'm not sure I'd have waited two hours for a pint. <laughs> well, this is it. You know, if, if you're going on holiday and you know, you've got a booking at a pub but then you have to wait two hours to actually be served i'm wondering if this is just going to put loads of people off so you know the pub and restaurant industry has been waiting for this big moment the reopening which has now been in play for um, a month or so but what's going to happen if we're all staying in the uk on summer holiday and we're rushing to go to the same places um i wonder whether the you know the hospitality industry could actually see some disappointment here that people are just going to give up um, the other thing, you know, I, I was thinking, well, should I, should I bother with my uh, trying to persevere and going on holiday overseas this summer, or should I just holiday in the UK? So I had to look around at sort of accommodation in sort of popular seaside locations, and it was just impossible to find anything. And mm. I noticed that someone I follow on Twitter was saying that almost every Premier Inn they've looked at over the last couple of weeks has sold out for July and August. And they're seeing sort of rooms that normally go for 80, 100 pounds, going for nearly double that a night. Now, Premier Inn is owned by Whitbread and its shares are up 11% year to date. So that's not bad. It's got a trading update on the 17th of June. So I shall be looking extremely closely at what it's saying about bookings you know you i wouldn't be surprised if we see some news about there's been a big spike in demand there for its room so definitely one to watch i know there's certainly a big push for um campsites in in places like stately homes to be allowed to open for longer over the summer in order to make more availability for people because you know you're absolutely right even though we don't have all those foreign tourists coming in they would traditionally go to our big cities, so London and Edinburgh. Whereas if you've got a family and you were looking to do your summer holiday, you're just looking for somewhere where the kids can run and maybe use a swimming pool. But uh, there we go. Um, so have you, you can the plans for a foreign holiday then? I think it's looking like I'm not going to even sort of hold my hopes that it's going to happen. I'm just going to go UK. But I did see some data from Bank of America that says airline bookings actually soared to the highest post-pandemic level but I wonder if those bookings are for next year rather than this year but you know the airline industry is definitely desperate to get more planes in the sky and we've seen the heads of American Airlines, British Airways, Delta and United Airlines all calling for the US and UK to lift 
the transatlantic travel restrictions that are in place. You know, the argument is that high vaccination rates in both countries should mean that travel could restart fairly safely after more than a year of restrictions. And on Wednesday, we saw travel shares, you know, particularly the airline stocks, were doing quite well after the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention relaxed its travel advice for more than 110 countries and territories. Now, theoretically, that would increase the earnings prospects for companies that provide transport accommodation. So you could see why investors were sort of drawn to this area. But against this backdrop, some airlines are still fighting the issue of refunds, which remains a very sore subject for people across the country. Yeah, it does. I'm on a Facebook site for people that have been unable to get refunds. And uh, oh, some of the comments that you see, the frustration, it, it's incredible. And today, the Competition and Markets Authority, which, of course, is the watchdog that looks after consumers, have said that they are going to investigate whether or not British Airways and Ryanair broke consumer law in not offering refunds to customers who couldn't legally take flights due to COVID lockdown. Now, in this case, the airlines had, for the most part, offered other options, but had both refused refunds. Now, BA said it acted lawfully, Ryanair said it had refunded customers in justified cases. But the CMA said, you know, we understand that airlines have had a tough time during the pandemic, but people shouldn't be left unfairly out of pocket for following the law because, of course, people just couldn't fly. And in some cases, these flights still operating and they were told that they would either have to rebook or get vouchers. And I know a lot of people were unhappy about that. So, Keep a close eye on what happens with that investigation. Yeah, so it's almost a wrap before we sign off. But first, here's Jenny Owen. And this week, you've been looking into the sale of a fake that's got art lovers in a tis. Do tell. Absolutely. Yeah, normally you'd be pretty gutted to hear you've paid top dollar for something fake. But this week, a replica of arguably the most famous painting in the world is set to rake in the dough. The original Mona Lisa, when you take into account inflation over the years, has a suggested value of as much as £1 billion. A copy of the work of art, said to be created by a follower of da Vinci in the early 17th century, is now up for grabs in Paris. Although it's not the real deal, it's expected to fetch €300,000. It's been named the Mona Lisa Hecking, after its ex-owner, Raymond Hecking, caused controversy by questioning the authenticity of the original masterpiece now at the Louvre. As the painting was stolen in 1914, he was convinced the one in the museum was a fake and the one he'd bought from an art dealer in Nice for three pounds in the 1950s was the original. It's not the first time someone has splashed the cash for a copy of the painting. In 2019, another 17th century copy sold for 552,500 euros. So if anything, this one's a bit of a steal. Wow, that's the kind of market buy you'd like, isn't it, Dan? To go and spend three quid and then discover something's worth ooh, a few hundred thousand pounds? Yeah. <laughs> we, we were doing a Zoom call with Jenny earlier and I did notice there was a big gap on your wall. Are you preparing <laughs> to fill that gap with a, with a, piece of, a certain piece of artwork? Oh, for three hundred thousand euros! <laughs> oh, I don't know. It have to be. It have to be something real special. <laughs> 
Thanks, James. Well, next week, we'll be assessing the latest inflation figures and asking what investors should be thinking about if the economy does run hot. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.